Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Today is a special Sunday uh, because we are jumping into a brand new series that we're going to be in for the summer, and we are calling this series The Answer. Everybody say The Answer. Um, I'll give you some clarity about what that means in just a moment, but uh, we're going to be doing something we, we do occasionally around here at the Father's House. We're going to be studying through an entire book of the New Testament, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. So for all of the book study loving, uh, expository preaching folks in the room, you're welcome. We love you. I'm here to serve. Uh, for those who don't like that kind of stuff, uh, I'm sorry. You're going to have to endure for the next couple of months, uh, but I'm actually really excited about this series because I think the content is going to really help us in our current culture and in light of all that we see happening around us. Um, But before we get into it, I I do feel the need to offer what I would say is a bit of a Surgeon General's warning for this series. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, things are going to get really real. Um, This book is, is not an easy one to stomach. There's a strong possibility that in the weeks to come, you will experience some side effects as a result of this series. Uh, Some upset stomach, some discomfort as a result of conviction and correction, and even the possibility of offense. Uh, Fair warning as we get into even today's content, the truth of God's word will in fact confront our culture. It will confront cultural ways of thinking and cultural ways of thinking and cultural ways of defining things. And as we go through this, when every opportunity for offense arises, I just need you to remember a couple things. Number one, that you love me, okay? Did you remember that? That you love the Father's house, that you love Jesus. Uh, and, and most importantly, I need you to remember that I did not write this book. I am merely presenting this book to all of us in its clearest form. And if you have any problem with what the Bible has to say, you'll have to take that one up with Jesus, all right? Uh, or you can email david at tfh.church. And he will handle all of your concerns about what I'm about to share. But this is going to get real. This is a very uncomfortable book to study. Uh, But now having offered that disclaimer, uh, let me explain to you why we are calling this series The Answer. The books of 1 and 2 Corinthians were letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church in the region of Corinth. Corinth was uh, the capital of uh, Greece in ancient Rome, and it was a port city that was known for its intellectualism, its wealth, and its influence on the greater region. Uh, As a result of its geographic location, halfway between Athens and Sparta, it was a main hub for export and, uh, and imports. And as a result of that, you had people from all around the world coming to Corinth. Uh, people were coming and going for work, making it an incredibly diverse culture, but also a bit of a transient culture where people did not stay for very long before they moved on to the next city. Uh, but in addition to its reputation for being a hub of wealth and influence and knowledge, uh, Corinth was one of the most progressive cities in ancient Rome. It was a place where you could come to explore and experiment and figure out who you truly were. As a result, it became a bit of a hotbed for hedonism. 
there were countless temples erected around the city of Corinth to various gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world where people were not only permitted to, but they were encouraged to indulge their flesh and engage in various kinds of sexual practices as forms of worship to these Greek gods. In fact, there was one massive temple, the, the largest one in the city, made to Aphrodite. And at the temple of Aphrodite, there were a thousand temple prostitutes that the common folk could come and sleep with and engage in, in sexual acts with as forms of worship to their goddess. Uh, needless to say, it, it was not a place that was well known for its Christian values or its high moral standards. Uh, in fact, one um, theologian, William Barclay, uh, he writes this about the city. He says, the term Corinthiosami was well known in the Roman Empire, and it meant literally to live like a Corinthian. But everyone knew that it really meant to be sexually out of control. Alien, the late Greek writer, tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown upon the stage in a Greek play, he was shown drunk. Another theologian says this, the Corinthians were widely recognized as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. <laughs> to put it simply, Corinth was a place where you could move to be whoever you wanted to be, do whatever you wanted to do, indulge in whatever you wanted to indulge in, and you were not just tolerated, but you were celebrated for doing so. Let me ask today, does that sound like a city to anybody else that you might be familiar with? <laughs> yeah, welcome to modern Corinth, people. It's the world that we're living in. And as is the case with many Christians today, even in their times, this would not be a place where you would expect to find a bunch of believers. They would move to Nashville and Texas and to other places to escape from this kind of a city. But the Apostle Paul saw Corinth as a very strategic location. Paul understood that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ works best in the darkest of places and he believed that if he could plant a life-giving church in a place like Corinth, that it would have the ability to affect far beyond the borders of that city. In the same way that they imported and exported goods, he believed if we could import the gospel to Corinth, it could be exported to the known lands around it, and it would affect far more people than just those re residing in Corinth. And again, I hope you see the similarities of what I'm saying right now. In fact, let me take off my biblical historian hat for 45 seconds and put on my preaching hat if I could. That is the very same reason that we exist here in the city of San Francisco. The Father's house is not here to be a gathering place for the few Christians that exist in our city where we hunker down and try to keep the big bad world at bay. No, the reason we've planted a church in this city is because we believe that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ works best in the darkest of places, and you're sitting in one of the darkest cities in the known world, but God's called us to be a beacon of light into this place. The enemy has tried as hard as he can to keep his grip on San Francisco for as long as he can. It is no surprise that this has been a difficult place, hard ground to plant churches over the last few decades. But God has called you and other life-giving churches in our city for such a time as this because there is something being birthed in the spirit. Come on, people of faith. God's not done with San Francisco. There is still an end times harvest of souls to come in. And I believe we will see an Isaiah 62 reality in this city where it will no longer be known on a global scale as a den of wickedness, but will be known as a place of God's moving, his God's power, where thousands of people are being saved, lives are being transformed, marriages are being restored. Come on, the addicted are being set free. There will be a move of God in this city in Jesus' name. That's why we're here. My man, thank you waving a phone at me like I'm at a rock concert. Let's go. 
Just call me T-Swizzle, all right? <laughs> and, and Paul believed the same about Corinth. And so he planted this church in AD 49, believing that God would move in the city and that it would be exported from there. And hundreds of people started coming to Christ as he planted this church. But, but 18 months later, he felt that they had the ability to stand on their own two feet. And so he set off for Syria to continue on in his missionary journey and plant more churches. Um, but shortly after his departure, he began to receive some, some letters of concern from the people of the church who were discovering that it was a bit more difficult than they realized to live for Christ in a culture as wicked and pervasive as theirs. Uh, some letters that began to explain how the Corinthian way of life was making its way into the local church. And, and so Paul responds by writing this letter. And throughout the letter, he begins to address one by one the issues that have been brought to his attention. But with each issue, whether it was sexual immorality or it was pride or it was conflict or it was pagan practices of worship that had made their way into the church of Jesus Christ, every single time Paul provides a similar solution. In every chapter, he begins to show how the gospel of Jesus Christ has an answer for the problem that they're facing. Hence the title of this series, The Answer. If their city was a lot like our city and their problems are a lot like our problems, then their solution is going to be our solution as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ did not just show believers a couple thousand years ago how to live in a wicked culture for Christ, but it has the ability to show even us now today how to live in our culture as lights in the midst of darkness. And so what we're going to do every single week is we're going to we're gonna go through this book chapter by chapter. You can do the math on how many weeks the series is gonna be. And each week we're gonna look at the main content or the, ma the main subject that, that Paul is addressing, the main issue he's addressing to the local church and ask ourselves, does this exist in us as well? And is there something that he's saying there that will help us rewire our thinking so that we can be the believers he's called us to be in this city? So with that in mind, we're going to jump into the beginning here of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, as we do, can, can we pray one more time and just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us in this series? Let's do that. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. And uh, I, I just picked up my Bible down there during worship and read once again in Hebrews where it says that the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the, the ability to cut through bone and marrow, soul and spirit and cut through the curtain of, of deception that, that culture offers and, and reveal the truth. Today, as we go to this book, th this book that was written a few thousand years ago but has very timely, relevant today content for us, would you reveal Jesus? Would you reveal how the gospel can address every issue we face in our lives and in our churches today? In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. 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 First Corinthians chapter one. These are the opening uh, words of the apostle Paul in the letter. He says, I am writing to God's church in Corinth to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So pause here for a moment. Before we get too deep into the major theme of chapter one, we need to stop and consider a foundational principle that Paul is establishing here at the beginning of this letter, a principle that he understands if we don't, if we don't put into play, if we are not convicted of, then we will not be able to apply anything he says from this point on. And that foundational principle for the book of Corinthians is this, that you have been called to live a holy life. 
that as believers, we have been called to holiness. Well, what is holiness? Often when we hear the word holy, there's an image that comes to mind. We see the nun or the monk that has removed themselves from society to live a life of, of solidarity and, and purity and, and, and chastity. And you know, we, want, we don't want the big bad world to mess with us, so we cloister away. But while that nun might be holy, that, that's not necessarily what Paul is saying we are all called to here. Although if you're called the nun, nun it up with the best of them, all right? Just enjoy yourself. I'm praying that for my daughters, for sure. Um, <laughs> but, but that's not what Paul's saying. The, the word holy, it simply means set apart. It means outside of the context of your culture. It means that you're different. You're without mixture. To borrow the words of Jesus, he says, you are called to be in this world, but not of this world. Yes, I live in this society, but not, I've not allowed this culture to affect the way I think or the way I live or what I consider to be truth. No, I, I understand that I have been called to live set apart for the cause of Christ. So there's certain things I cannot do, certain places I cannot go, certain persuasions I cannot adopt into my life. For if I did, it would compromise my call to holiness. That's why Paul starts this whole letter off with some very significant language. He says, I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth. He did not say I'm writing to the church of God of Corinth or to the believers of Corinth. He wants to draw a distinction. You may live in that city, but you are not of that city. I'm writing to a group of people that understand that you have been set apart for the purposes of God. You are not called to be influenced by your city. You are called to influence the city that you live in. Come on, Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes, our culture is pervasive. Yes, it has a lot of agendas. It wants to shove down our throat. But as believers, we've been called to live set apart. We're in it, but we don't adopt their customs and their practices into our life. We have built our life on the timeless truth of God's word. And I could go on, but I'll say this. I think one of the healthiest questions you can ask yourself on a consistent basis is how much you have in common with your culture. What, what, do, I, what do I look like? What do I do? What, what do how do I think that, that aligns with my culture? Because if you find yourself looking more like the world around you than you do like Jesus, then we have not established this foundational principle that we've been called to holiness. But, but now, having established that principle, Paul goes on to, to, to address the main issue that he, he wants to tackle in the first chapter of this letter. The, the issue, if we could boil it down, it's this. It is human knowledge versus godly wisdom. An issue that he seems to, to feel is prevalent in their church and an issue that I would say is alive and well in the Bay Area. I've dealt with it time and time again as a pastor of this church but human wisdom versus, or excuse me, human knowledge versus godly wisdom. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God and his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, few of you were that smart in the world's eyes. 
You weren't powerful or wealthy when God called you. Come on, how many can attest to that one today? I'm on that team for sure. Instead, God chose the foolish things of this world to confound those who think that they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. A lot there, a lot there to chew on for sure. But if we could distill it down, ultimately what Paul is doing is he's borrowing some language from the book of Isaiah as he begins to draw this distinction between two phrases. What he calls the wisdom of men or the knowledge of men and the wisdom of God. And for about a dozen verses, he does a very aggressive but very intentional job of rustling all the feathers of the people in Corinth who find themselves in their culture that, that idolizes certain things. And he begins to, to draw the line between these two different concepts. He uses language like, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound or shame those people who think that they're really smart. He goes on to say, God has elevated the things that this world would define as weak or insignificant to display that you can't, you can't learn your way to God. You can't read a book into relationship with Jesus. All of this is by faith. It is not an appeal to the intellect. It's an appeal to the heart. And then I love the way he concludes this whole section, kind of a mic drop moment. He says, all of this was ultimately to deconstruct the systems of this world. To, to, to tear apart the mindset that this earthly knowledge that people idolize is the highest thing we should be chasing, but instead to show them that the things they think are really important are actually not all that important in light of eternity. I love the ending there. And the reason that Paul has done a rather exhaustive and aggressive job at addressing these two these two areas of thought and living is because as you read through the book of Acts, here's what you'll find. Time and time again, Paul ran up against some rejection when it came to the gospel. As he attempted to present the gospel to the Greco-Roman world, a place that, that idolized intellect and knowledge, he found over and over again that they weren't just rejecting him as a messenger of the gospel, but that they were rejecting the very gospel itself because to them, this gospel felt like foolishness. Remember, I said that they idolized intellect. They idolized knowledge. These were people, if we could contextualize it, they would have been those that cared very deeply about the school you went to, the degree that you had, how many letters were behind your name, the conversations that you could engage in based on your level of intelligence with the cultural subjects. If they had social media, they would have been the people who pontificated as they posted on public platforms about all their brilliance and all their knowledge and how everyone else was stupid and they knew everything. I know that's nothing like our world today, but these, these are the kinds of people that Paul is trying to preach to. And I know I already quoted him once before today, but he says things so much better than I. Look at what Barclay says about this culture of intelligence. He says, originally the Greek word sophist meant a wise man in the good sense, but in Corinth, it came to mean a man with a clever mind and cunning tongue, a mental acrobat, a man who with glittering and persuasive rhetoric could make the worse appear the better reason. It meant a man who would spend endless hours discussing hair-splitting trifles, a man who had no real interest in solutions, but who simply gloried in the stimulus of the mental hike. Selah. Anyone know someone like that? Don't look around. Okay, yeah. These are the people that that Paul is attempting to preach this very simple, rudimentary gospel to. People who are highly intelligent, 
who know a lot about a lot. But as he presents the gospel, they dismiss it, assuming that it is just as foolish, just as simple-minded as the people who are presenting it to them. And at the risk of sounding like a bit of a heretic, let me just say this. I kind of don't blame them. Like, pastor? (laughs) I mean, I understand that we have some historical backing for our faith, but let's be honest. The gospel is a bit of a difficult pill to swallow apart from faith. It's not the easiest thing in the world to believe in. I mean, just peel back the curtain. At the end of the day, most of us in the room today have put our eternal hope in a guy named Jesus who we've never met face to face. We've never seen with, I hope I'm not planting seeds of doubt right now. Never seen with your eyes. You've only read about in an ancient book that was written 2,000, 10,000, how many years ago by people that you've never met or heard of before. And and you're banking on the fact that 2,000 years ago, a guy died on a cross, resurrected on the third day without the aid of medicine or doctors, and then 40 days later ascended to heaven where he now sits, and one day he's gonna come back on a white horse and retrieve you for eternity. (laughs) (laughs) Joanne's excited about it, but... Like, let's be real. (laughs) This is not like the most logical thing on the planet to to believe in. Not that thousands of Greek gods and goddesses were logical either. But again, apart from faith, the gospel is a bit difficult to stomach. So, So it is not surprising that many in the Corinthian culture dismissed it and called it foolishness. And it's not surprising that in our culture today, many people would dismiss it and call it foolishness. But... What some call foolish, others of us have come to know as the very truth which sets us free. I love the way Paul said it. This is only foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God that is saving those who believe. So come on, you can call me a fool all you want, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed my life and nothing else even comes close. But at the end of the day, Paul did not write this letter so that we could boast in our foolishness. He did not write this letter so that we could point fingers at the Corinthians who felt that they were wise and ultimately turned out to be fools because they never accepted the gospel. That was not his aim here. Remember, this was a response. His letter was written to a group of people who were experiencing this mindset in the church. And so the greatest question we can ask ourselves as we begin to unpack this letter here now in in, in chapter one is this, has their problem become our problem? Have we created in our culture idols of knowledge while we've subsequently dismissed or devalued what he calls the wisdom of God or the things of God? I think on a cultural level, the answer is absolutely we have. It is no surprise that the institutions of higher learning in our society dismiss by and large the gospel and the people who who believe in it. They call God and those who believe in him fools and there's no room for that in the institutions of higher learning in our society. It is no secret that in the Bay Area specifically, there is a disproportionate value on intellect and knowledge over spiritual health. People wanna know a lot about a lot, but we don't take care of our, our spiritual condition. But, but the question is not whether or not the value system of our culture is broken. We know that it is. The question is whether that broken value system has made its way into the heart of a believer. 
have we begun to idolize the wrong things, to focus our efforts, our attention, and our time on the things that are temporary and not the things that are eternal? And I think the easiest way for us to answer that question is to simply consider that which we prioritize in our lives. What gets the best of your time, the best of your attention? Are you in an endless pursuit of consuming more information, especially in an age where information is available to us everywhere? Do we want to be able to have the right conversations with the right people and sound like we know what we're talking about? Are we after the degree? Are we after the letters behind the name? And before some of the older people in the room think that I'm just appealing to a younger group of people like, oh, this is for the younger guys, those in their college years and their formative years and they're working their way to the career. Let me remind you that you have children and you have grandchildren and there is a value system that you're preaching to them right now as well. So let me appeal to you. Are you preaching to your children that what matters most is the school that they attend and the grades that they get and the potential setup for their future career in this Bay Area culture, have you made an idol of knowledge or are you showing your children that what matters most is their relationship with Jesus, their knowledge of the word of God, building the kingdom of God through the house of God and using their life for his purposes? Because one of those things is eternal and the other one's gonna burn. What value system are you preaching into? What matters most? And you know, before I offend anybody, which is probably too late, let me just say, I am not suggesting today that knowledge is the enemy. I'm not saying that intelligence or degrees or the ability to perform at an intellectual level that's superior to others around, I'm not saying those are bad things, okay? In fact, if I was, then I would be disregarding the word of God because the Proverbs say, get as much knowledge as you can here on earth, okay? This is not some trumpet call to unintelligence while we all stick our fingers in our nose and read our Bible for the rest of our lives. That's not what I'm, I'm preaching today. I know that in a city like ours, and even as I look around the room in a, in a community like ours, we have some incredibly intelligent people here. We have doctors and physicians and, and surgeons who can literally save lives as a result of what they know. We, we have people in this community that can code and program at an elite level. People that are working in AI and robotics that will completely change the future of, of our societies. We have people that can predict financial markets and invest in VC stuff and, and people who lead at an executive level and are working on cures for cancers and like people that I would have to sit down with a dictionary to play Scrabble with because I have no idea half the words that you use and the acronyms that you use. We have some intelligent people here. And, and I just wanna say, I celebrate you. I'm grateful that you are in the community. I need you in my life. In fact, we need you in the kingdom, okay? We don't need a bunch of people that don't know anything in the kingdom. We need people at all levels of society in the kingdom because you can influence people that none of us can get to. I need you to be a witness at the top of your food chain, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and display the goodness of God and live with integrity. We need all of the people to truly witness to the world around us. But in your pursuits, in your chasing of that next title, of that master's degree, of that doctorate, in your chasing of the things that this world values, be careful. Be careful that those do not become idols, that you fill your head while your heart remains empty. Be careful that you have not adopted the value system of your culture to the neglect of the value system in the kingdom. Because again, one is eternal. 
and one is temporary. Uh, Robin and I, we, we, um, we recently introduced our daughters to a show that many of us in the room grew up on. It's now streaming on Hulu. Uh, we introduced them to a little thing called Full House. Any Full House fans in the room? Come on. Whatever happened to predictability? Milkman, paperboy. Okay. <laughs> Some of you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, by the way, I've had a couple of revelations while I've been watching Full House. Uh, revelation number one. Um, all fashion is, comes full circle. So if you just save your clothes right now in about 15 years, you're going to be super popular and they're going to be like, you can sell them for a lot of money. Uh, but number two, uh, I've realized that Danny Tanner must've been a baller. Cause I don't know anybody in San Francisco with that many bedrooms, that many bathrooms and that much square footage that they had in their house. I'm like, okay, Danny had it going on for sure. But uh, recently we were watching um, season three of Full House. I think it was episode 18. And uh, it's an episode called No More Mr. Dumb Guy. For those unfamiliar with the show, um, Uncle Jesse, who is uh, a Greek good-looking guy with a great head of hair, he's a rock musician, uh, he is currently dating Danny Tanner's co-host of Wake Up San Francisco, Rebecca Donaldson, a.k.a. Becky, someone who Jess has told me my wife looks just like, which I'm a big fan of because I had a crush on Becky when I was a kid. So call me Uncle Jesse. Have mercy. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> but in this particular episode, <laughs> sorry, that was a little off color. Um, in this particular episode, uh, Jesse's been invited by Becky to come to a party uh, that evening to celebrate the start of the cult Festival of Cultural Arts in San Francisco, where one of her college professors, Dr. Eric Trent, is going to be, and, and she wants her boyfriend to meet her old college professor. Uh, but Jesse realizes, after saying yes, that he cannot compete on an intellectual level with the people that are going to be present at this party. And so he puts on a robe and he pretends to be sick when the evening comes so that he doesn't have to go. And uh, he makes his way up the stairs, but as he's on his way upstairs, the doorbell rings and Becky opens the door to her college professor. And Jesse has a revelation that Dr. Trent is not a wrinkly old professor. He is an attractive young doctor. And for fear that this man will sweep Becky up off of her feet, he decides, I got to go to the party. So uh, Jesse puts on a tuxedo to kind of fit in with the people around him. And then he also puts on some glasses because everybody knows that uh, you look smarter in glasses. I feel 10 times smarter right now just because I put those on, even though they're just blue blockers. All right. But so he puts on these glasses and he puts on the tux and later throughout the, during the evening, he makes his way over to the party. But as he starts to engage in conversation with this group of highly educated people, uh, he realizes rather quickly that he does not know how to talk to them. He doesn't know how to answer the questions being posed. And so when a topic is broached that, that Jesse doesn't know anything about, he has kind of a, a safety procedure. He takes off his glasses. He puts the temple into his lip, kind of stares into the distance for a moment, and he says, interesting, but terribly overrated. <laughs> over and over again in the, uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the show there. So here's your trick. Next time you're at a party, you don't know what to do, take out your glasses. Just do it during the sermon occasionally. Interesting, <laughs> but terribly overrated. As I was watching this, I was thinking, here's a guy who, who looks like everybody else around him. He's dressed the part. He's got the glasses on. He's even attempting to engage in the conversation with people around him. But beneath the surface, 
His true colors lie. He's a fraud. He's an imposter. He's a counterfeit. Behind the surface, he might look like everybody else, but he knows very little about the culture that he is trying to portray. And I can't help but wonder if we have some Uncle Jesse's in the church world. Not Greeks with great hair. Bob, you have great hair and you're a Greek. <laughs> Lord, send him his Aunt Becky in Jesus' name. Okay. <laughs> but I wonder if we have some Uncle Jesse's, some people that look like the kingdom. They come to church. They sing the songs. They can even engage in the occasional conversation, throw an amen out there, but in the spirit, they just got their glasses in their lip because they know very little about the culture that they find themselves in. Not for lack of opportunity, not because it's not available, but because they've chosen to remain willfully ignorant to the things of the kingdom while they fill their heads and deplete their hearts. They are socially astute, but spiritually bankrupt. And lest I get caught in sitcom analogies and cryptic language, let me be clear about what I'm saying right now. And I apologize up front if this hurts, but it's the truth. When we devalue things like reading the scriptures, memorizing the word of God, prayer, worshiping outside this room, when we devalue things like having a clear handle on our theology and our eschatology and our pneumatology and even knowing what those words mean. When we devalue things like being able to have an intelligent conversation with somebody about the things of God, leading someone to salvation because we understand why we believe what we believe, serving the kingdom, using our lives to build that which Jesus is building in the earth. To, to know how to rightly divide the, the word of God and apply it to our day-to-day -day context. When we put those things below the next letter behind our name or the education that we're chasing or the next career opportunity or the next open door or all of the things that our society puts up on a pedestal, then unfortunately, we have become the very fools that Paul speaks of in this text. Because that is not what life is supposed to be about. Some of these things are eternal. Some of these things are temporary. And we need to understand that the pull of our culture is to elevate knowledge over godly wisdom. And, and if this feels offensive, remember, you love me and you love the church. If this feels offensive, if it feels like it flies in the face of the culture you find yourself in, it's because it does. But the reason I'm willing to risk offense and the reason that the Apostle Paul was willing to risk offense and rejection is because he was attempting to convey a truth that I'm attempting to convey today. A truth that when you strip it all back is the foundation our lives is built upon. Ultimately, what Paul wanted the people of Corinth to know and what I would want every person in this room to know today is that this life is not about what you know. It's not about how much you can get into your head. At the end of the day, what matters most in this life is not what you know, it is who you know. It's all about relationship, not about knowledge. Look, look at how Paul concludes this portion of the letter. And, and as we go here, the worship team can come. But he says this in verse 28. 
He says, God chose these things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And then look at these last two sentences. He says, and God has united you with Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus Christ? Well, for our benefit, God has made him to be wisdom itself. He's united you with Christ, and Christ is wisdom. What Paul is saying here is that true wisdom is not found in getting a whole bunch into your head. True wisdom is found in knowing Jesus, for Jesus himself is wisdom. This is not a pursuit of trying to find out more and tuck it away in our, in our minds. No, this should be the pursuit of a person. The thing we should be primarily focused on is chasing Jesus. So, so as simple as it sounds, I think this entire first chapter and this whole sermon has been just nothing more than a lengthy lead up to ask a very basic question of the church. And it's this, how important is your relationship with Jesus to you? How important? Is it of chief importance? Is it what you pursue above all other things? Have you had to take a break from the things of God while you pursue the things of your career? Because if so, you have an idol on your hands. Have you had to take a break from the things of God while you, while you chase down that next opportunity? Because if so, you have an idol on your hands. We have adopted the mindset of a Corinthian culture that elevates human knowledge and the ways of this world above godly wisdom. But if we find ourselves in that space today, then the response is very simple. As we start out this series, the greatest thing we can do is dethrone every idol that has tried to take its place on our hearts and say, I'm putting Jesus back on the throne where he belongs and I'm gonna spend my life pursuing the person of Jesus because wisdom is found in a person, not in anything this world has to offer. I know that's simple, but man, aren't you grateful that the gospel is simple, that it's not complicated, that it was not pitched to the intellectually astute, but to all people, the simple gospel, run after Jesus. I, I love the way that Paul puts it in this last scripture. It's to another group of Greeks in Philippi. He says this in Philippians 3.8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. In comparison, Jesus sits at the top of the food chain. Nothing else even comes close. So here's how I wanna to pray today. I wanna to pray that as we start out this series in the summer, that there would be a fresh desire in our hearts to respond to this call for holiness, to live set apart lives in our culture. And, and I wanna pray because if we don't get past this one, if we elevate the, the knowledge of man over the wisdom of God, everything else he's gonna speak to us in this book is gonna just hit like a wall in our heads. But whether we, our hearts would remain open and we'd be ready to receive all that God has for us. So, so let's pray as, as we conclude. Jesus, we hear this call in the spirit. We hear the call to holiness, to live set apart. Just take a moment and we do a little self-reflection. We repent today, Father, if there's things in our lives that have taken the place of Jesus, idols that we've elevated above you, pursuits that we've elevated above you. We repent if 
the ways of our culture have, have poisoned our hearts and we've forgotten to build our lives on that which matters most, the truth of your word. And today we just say that we come back to this call. As it says in the Psalms, I hear the Lord saying, come and speak with me. And my heart responds, I'm coming. God, we, we wanna respond to this call to open up our hearts once again, to heed this call to holiness. May the Father's house not be known as a place of a bunch of gathered intellectuals, but may be known as a place where the power of God is at work because of the simple gospel. And with your head still bowed, I wanna pray for one more group of people. As I got into the end of the sermon last service, I just had this thought that maybe there might be someone here today or a few people here today that would be like those Corinthians before Paul showed up. They were indulging in the culture, engaging in the ways of the world. And then one day Paul shows up and they're confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're confronted with this, this God man that came and gave his life and resurrected so that they could be saved. Maybe you're here today and you've tried everything the culture has to offer, but you're still unfulfilled. Tried everything that the world has for you, but there's still a longing in your heart for something more. I believe the Holy Spirit would speak to you even now and say, you're here today for this moment because I wanna engage in relationship with you. And if you've been at a distance from God or maybe you've never even been in relationship with him, but you know that today the Holy Spirit would say, it's time to come home, son. It's time to come home, daughter. It's time to hand your life over to me. I wanna pray a prayer of commitment along with you as we conclude. And we've already been uncomfortable all morning, so I'll just ask you to be uncomfortable one more time. If that's you and you need to pray this prayer along with me, would you just quickly slip up your hand and say, Tim, would you, would you include me in this prayer today? Thank you, ma'am, got you. Yeah, got you right there. Awesome, sweetheart, yeah. Yeah, got you in the back, right on. Yeah, here, 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 here. Wow, hallelujah. Okay, up there. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> the hard truth still saves. Amen. Amen. All right, with all of those who just lifted their hand, and even if you didn't, that's okay. Can we as a community pray with these making a decision coming to Christ today so that they don't feel alone? Everyone pray with me out loud. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to be your disciple as I choose to follow you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Men. Come on, let's celebrate with every single one of those coming to Jesus today. That's awesome. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.